You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and Stroke Program Director at the William Bacchus Hospital in Norwich, Connecticut. Diabetic neuropathy can be painful and can lower a diabetic patient's quality of life. There are now several ways to treat the tingling and burning caused by nerve damage. Dr. Vera Brill is a neurology professor at the University of Toronto. She's also fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and lead author of the Academy's latest guideline on treating diabetic nerve pain. She'll be discussing the AAN's new guideline today on Neurofrontiers. Dr. Brill, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. It's such a great pleasure to be here. Can you describe for our listeners the symptoms of diabetic neuropathy and give them some idea of how many people are affected by this problem? Yes, I can. So diabetic neuropathy is a nerve disorder commonly observed in people with diabetes. It's the most common complication. And if you talk about the painful variant, then 16% of patients with diabetes will have this, even though they may not talk to their doctors about it. There are many more patients who have more silent nerve injury, but the ones who are troubled by pain make up 16% of the population. When you know that the number of people with diabetes is at least 6% in our population, you can see that there's a large number of people who have painful diabetic neuropathy. About how many patients will experience diabetic neuropathy at some point in their lifetime who have had chronic diabetes? At least half of our patients with diabetes will have neuropathy. Most often, it's a numbness or loss of feeling, and many patients may not even notice the symptoms, but they may lose their balance and get unsteady and have falls. Some of them will have painless injuries to their feet. They may have ulcers and non-healing wounds that lead to chronic infections, osteomyelitis and infections, and maybe amputations. But some others have chronic pain in their feet. They can have burning pain along the soles of their feet, troublesome at night when they're trying to sleep, waking them up. Or they can have freezing feelings or jabbing electrical shock-like pains in their feet, all due to nerve injury and nerves that are signaling badly. Is controlling the blood sugar a key item in controlling the amount of nerve pain that may be produced and the amount of nerve damage that's produced? Well, controlling the blood sugar can minimize the progression of the nerve damage, the loss of the nerve fibers, because that's the, the main thing in diabetic nerve disease is progressive loss of nerve fibers. So if you control your blood sugars as perfectly as possible, then you can minimize progression of nerve damage, particularly in people with type 1 diabetes, but also to some extent in type 2. We have nothing that can reverse nerve damage. Now, controlling the painful symptoms is a different thing. Even if a person with diabetes who has not very good control starts controlling their sugars as well as they can, they very rarely have relief of their pain. So you need other ways to try to control their painful symptoms. Are there different levels of diabetic nerve pain? Do you classify them differently? People do try to classify nerve pain in different ways, depending on the character of the pain and assuming it's different types of nerve activity. But we don't actually classify it by the type of nerve fibers that are damaged. But when we measure pain, 
we usually use a visual analog scale, which is a simple line extending from zero to 10 points, with zero meaning no pain and 10 being the worst possible pain a patient can experience. And we ask the patient to mark on that linear scale where they think their pain is. That way we can get an estimate of the intensity of their usual pain, their overall pain, so that when we do try different ways to reduce the pain, we can see if it's moving their pain intensity. Vera, why do so many patients not tell their doctors about the neuropathy? Is it because they sometimes don't notice it because it's gradual, or do they just think, well, it's something I have to live with? Well, I think some of them think it's something they have to live with, and others have no idea that it's a nerve problem related to their diabetes. They're surprised to find out that this burning or shock-like pain is a nerve injury. Generally, I think our population doesn't really pay attention to nerve problems very much or know about them. We know about different diseases like Alzheimer's or MS or stroke, but we don't know a lot about neuropathy in the general population. So patients aren't attuned to it as much as they might be, and their physicians don't always address the questions or cover them off in their annual inspections and questionnaires of the patients or their visits so that it's an unreported or underreported complication. And the more you start to look for it, the more you see it, and the more the patient gets educated, the more they're aware that symptoms like this mean they have nerve damage. Vera, do nerve conduction studies and EMG help you in approaching a patient with diabetic neuropathy? I think it's important to do a set of nerve conductions early on, but only from the point of view of assessing how many nerve fibers are left. For painful diabetic neuropathy, the nerve conduction studies are not very useful because they do not measure the activity of small nerve fibers. Nerve conduction studies measure the activity of large nerve fibers. Early on in a patient with diabetes, we think that the small nerve fibers are affected first and therefore you may do a set of nerve conductions and they can be very normal and yet the patient still has neuropathy and nerve damage due to diabetes. The value of the nerve conductions is if you do see changes, you know that there has been a lot of large fiber involvement as well. Although early on you may get involvement of small nerve fibers, as the disease progresses, all the nerve fibers are affected and the nerve conduction tests really give you an assessment of how advanced that process is. The new guidelines that were just published really suggest that the seizure drug pregabalin is effective in treating nerve pain. Which patients will respond to this drug best? You know, it's a very difficult thing to state that with any certainty. We know that perhaps 60 to 70 percent of patients will respond to any particular treatment or even less sometimes than that. But we don't know ahead of time who will or will not respond to any particular treatment that we use. And if they don't respond to one intervention, they may respond to another. When we select medications like pregabalin, we think that perhaps people who have jabbing or electrical shock-like pains may respond better. But when we select actually any of these treatments for patients, it's not so much on the character of the pain as it is their general health state and uh, medical condition. So, for example, pregabalin can have a lot of edema associated with it, and 
actually leads to weight gain in patients. So if you have a patient who already has a lot of peripheral edema in their lower limbs, you might not go to pregabalin first. Where do you like to start with the patient in terms of approaching it? There's pregabalin, gabapentin. Is there much difference? And where do you like to start? Is it with an anti-seizure medication or an antidepressant? Well, you know, I've been at this for a long time now. And so I actually start with the tricyclic antidepressants. I tend to start with amitriptyline, an older medication that's been around for a long time and does help a lot of people. But I start with very low doses. The doses in the table, in the guidelines, comes from the studies that were done and are a little too high for me. I usually start at about 10 milligrams a day and slowly titrate up. In fact, with any of these treatments, you start at a very low dose and slowly titrate the dose up to avoid too many side effects and to allow the patient to acclimatize to the medication. So you increase the dose until you get some significant pain relief or until the patient does not find the drug or intervention tolerable and you switch to something else. Now, more recently, because the tricyclics like amitriptyline have concerns about perhaps they can have some cardiac side effects. So more recently, I might use gabapentin first. One of the issues with gabapentin is that uh, the dose that was found effective in studies is 3.6 grams a day, which is a lot. But you do have the option of starting at a very low dose of about 300 milligrams a day and titrating upward. But if you start at that level and go up to 3.6, you will be taking about 12 pills a day. I mean, you can get higher dose preparations, but still it's a lot of pills a day, With whereas with some of the other medications, you can take them once a day. So it all depends on the patient, their medical state, and the convenience of the medication, the potential side effects that the medication has. Dr. Brill, I'd like to continue with this, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us today to discuss the AAN's new guidelines for treating diabetic nerve pain is Dr. Vera Brill. Dr. Brill is a neurology professor at the University of Toronto, and she's fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, as well as the lead author of these guidelines. Vera, just before the break, we were both dating ourselves a little bit because we were talking about amitriptyline, and it's certainly a drug I have a lot of experience with. One of the other concerns that plays a role here in my practice, at least, is the cost of these medications. And I know you brought up amitriptyline, which is a fairly inexpensive medication, gabapentin, which, again, is a generic medication. Does that play a role when you're trying to select the right medication for the initial treatment of diabetic nerve pain? It does play a role when people don't have a drug plan or when they're in an age group but the drugs aren't covered by the formulary with our payer so that if patients have to pay for their own drug, then this is definitely a concern, particularly for the newer drugs which tend to be too expensive. And I would include pregabalin and duloxetine in that list. They can be very effective, but there are patients who just cannot afford to take them. What other seizure medications do you find also helpful, and what other antidepressants other than amitriptyline have you found to be effective in approaching diabetic nerve pain? I have found that a lot of anticonvulsants or anti-seizure medications are not that helpful. I do know that carbamazepine has been recommended in this field. I haven't had great luck with it. I don't use it very much at all. Sodium valproate, 
was an effective agent in the reports that we reviewed in the literature. I don't use it that much. Again, I would use gabapentin or pregabalin because sodium valproate has possible teratogenic effects if it's a young woman of childbearing age. So I'm not that impressed with other anticonvulsants. I would think that as newer anticonvulsants become available that they might be tested in this population because the results are not definite. You can't just transfer results from one study to another. With respect to drugs like amitriptyline, I find that some of the other tricyclics also help and some other drugs in that antidepressant category can help, such as desipramine, for example, imipramine, but they haven't had the studies that have been adequate to show their efficacy and rate them within this table. The studies were either not done well enough to classify them well and give a level recommendation, A or B, or they just were never done, but just assumed to be helpful because amitriptyline works, so these other drugs might work as well. However, Because I know amitriptyline works, I will try other drugs in that class or that grouping of drugs, and I have found that they work at times. Is there any hope in the future for getting at the root cause of diabetic peripheral nerve pain? We're talking about how old we are, and I remember the aldose (laughs) reductase inhibitors. So that shows you where I came from. Is there anything along those lines that will get at the actual cause? We're not there yet. There's a lot of work being done in various centers, I think Ann Arbor University of Michigan and at the University of Calgary, on basic mechanisms behind nerve damage in diabetes and different interventions that may help. These are just two examples, but we don't really know the full pathophysiology. We don't know really all of the mechanisms that underlie the nerve degeneration And that is really why we're so far from finding anything that will lead to nerve regeneration. And then with pain, we don't know why people with the same degree of nerve damage on testing will have such different perceptions of pain. I mean, we don't know all of the central mechanisms that modify our pain perceptions. So we have a long way to go. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Vera Brill, a neurology professor at the University of Toronto and fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. She's also the lead author in the Academy's latest guideline on treating diabetic nerve pain. Dr. Brill, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. My pleasure. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.